Welcome back, friends, to another episode of the Plant-Based Business Podcast. Super excited to introduce today's guest, Adam Varney. Adam is the co-founder of Jar Kombucha, who you may recognise from the shelves of Harrods, Soho House, and other vendors across London and the UK. Adam's story is super interesting, coming across to London and starting from scratch with no knowledge what is recognised now as one of London and the UK's leading kombucha brands. Adam and I discussed the startup journey, the challenges that he faced and how to build a brand and ultimately go and get your product listed on shelves. Really interesting chat, great to sit down and spend some time with Adam. To learn more about Jar Kombucha, you can follow them on Instagram, it's at J-A-R-R Kombucha. For us, it's plant-based business, at plant-based business. And for me, it's at Louis underscore Blake. Hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks for having me, Louis. Thanks, man. Good to connect again. And uh, we met maybe six months ago when we first, I mean, we stock jar kombucha in California Kitchen. Mm-hmm. Super well received. And I mean, I think I discovered kombucha like two years ago, but it's kind of been a newer thing. I'm mm-hmm. guessing... You came across it way before that. <laughs> I mean, to start the company. So yeah, probably around twelve years ago or something. I was introduced to it by a friend who is into wellness, um, and she's been plant based for a long time. And she gave me a bottle after a yoga class one day when I was living in San Diego, and I hated it. I was like, "What is this? <laughs> like, I can't make sense of it." But I, I kept at it, and it yeah. started to change the way that I. Um, I guess consumed foods and drank and stuff and it it starts to change your palate in a way and then eventually you start to love it you know yeah we were saying just before actually that when we sell it in the restaurant if people haven't had it before you kind of get one or two reactions either they absolutely love it or they can't stand the taste for sure and I was kind of the other way to start with I I wanted to like it but didn't and then over time you start to get like you say develop a palate for it yeah and you're like man this isn't sour enough I need like pure vinegar now and now you're chasing like literally (laughs) chasing the sour version (laughs) So that so you you were living in San Diego, I guess, before, mm-hmm. and then yeah, did you then you did you what was the purpose of moving to the UK to start this business? Actually, yeah. so I mean, the story, if I can condense it, it's it's like a weird kind of synchronistic thing that happened. I was living in Los Angeles, where I'm from. I went to school in San Diego, but then I moved back to LA. Um, and I was living in LA, and I was moving to San Francisco. My sister had a spare room in her apartment. So I packed a van full of stuff and I drove up to San Francisco and I got halfway there and I got a call from my mom saying, hey, pull over. Your sister's apartment burned down. She was wow. on a run. She came back. The whole place was in flames. She like literally lost everything. You don't have a room to stay in. So turn around and come back to L.A. So I, I was like, man, reluctantly turn around, drove back to L.A. Thankfully, everyone was OK. But um, yeah, the whole place was destroyed. Was super lucky that happened when she was out. Yeah, that. totally. In the middle of the day, randomly. Um, and so I got back to LA and a week later, I got a message from some friends of mine that live in London and they run a beer brewery called Crate in Hackney Wick. And they were on a layover on their way back from New Zealand to London and they decided to extend it and stay with me in LA. And it just so happened I had a fridge full of kombucha. They had just heard about kombucha in Auckland and sat around the kitchen table drinking kombucha. They convinced me to learn how to make it and move over to London and start a kombucha brewery with them. So how long ago was this? This was in January of 2015, and we started Jar. We started brewing in uh, in June of 2015. Amazing. So, quick turnaround time, but <laughs> what was the kind of time period between you discovering kombucha and then having this conversation? Years. I mean, probably like seven years, eight years, or something like that. Maybe. Was, so, it, was it popular in LA at that time? When you it, it was person? starting to get popular. It was kind of in kind of the. Uh, it was in your Whole Foods. It was in yeah. kind of your your organic shops, but it wasn't mainstream yet. Okay. It's really only in the past. 
I guess probably five years that you're seeing it at like real mainstream supermarkets. And, uh, and you know, my grandparents drink it now yeah. and they're like 90 and 91 and Amazing. my cousins drink it and they're like four and five. So it's like the whole spectrum of, of yeah. people, but you know, that's also just in California. So yeah. I can't really speak for the whole United States. It's kind States. of like a microculture, like yeah. a bubble, isn't it? So for those that don't know, what is kombucha? In its simplest form, kombucha is fermented tea. Uh, classically brewed, it's made with tea, water, sugar, and a SCOBY. And a SCOBY is an acronym for a symbiotic culture of bacteria and yeast. So these ingredients are brewed together and they're left to ferment in a warm environment for around two weeks, which eventually leaves you with a nutrient-dense, kind of delicious soft drink. And what are the kind of key benefits? So uh, this is something that we get asked a lot. And, and the reality of the situation is that there's no scientific evidence, um, there's no scientific research that's been done on kombucha as a whole, but kombucha contains properties that have been studied um, on their own, most notably acetic acid, which is that main kind of vinegary flavor you get in kombucha, which has been shown in studies to um, help balance blood sugar by breaking down carbohydrates efficiently, slowing the release of insulin into your bloodstream, uh, also promotes good bacteria and kills bad bacteria in your gut. Um, in addition to that, you get the antioxidants from the tea, which are made more bioavailable when you break down the cell walls through the fermentation process. What's not scientifically proven um, is the fact that the, the bacteria in kombucha has any noticeable impact on your gut because most of it would be killed off by your stomach acid. Um, and even if it does make its way to your gut, the strains of bacteria found in kombucha don't naturally exist in your gut, so they're not going to propagate themselves from scratch. So it's a bit of misinformation when it comes to the probiotic element. The real benefits uh, arise from the, the acids created by the bacteria rather than the bacteria themselves. And it's actually a great reflection. I mean, I drink it in a wine glass. Yeah. Because I don't really, I don't drink alcohol, right? Yeah. So if you sit in a restaurant in the evening, you can have it in a wine glass. You can kind of sure. feel like, in terms of the way it looks, at yeah. least from the aesthetic, it looks like it may be having a glass of wine. Exactly. Having something a little bit healthier. Yeah, it's that complexity. It has that, it has that bite and that flavor profile that, that feels like you're drinking an alcoholic beverage in a way. That's why I think it's used as a non-alcoholic, it's as, as a substitute, because it has that complexity. Um, but yeah, it's fun to drink in, a, in a, either a beer glass or a, or a champagne flute. So 2019, we're in a place where you can find kombucha in mainstream supermarkets, mainstream restaurants. Mm -hmm. It's kind of fairly well known now, as you said, it transcends kind of ages. Mm. But I guess going back to the conversation around the table in, in LA, mm -hmm. firstly, the synchronicity. I mean, I I'm firmly believe that everything happens for a reason, right? Yeah. For you to be in that position to turn around, mm. I guess for anyone listening, it kind of means, yeah, completely trust in the process and of what happens mm -hmm. and, and, and flow with it. Mm -hmm. But equally the journey from being around that table to today when you guys are stocked in well so house mm. all the way down to like your smaller like my, my own restaurant mm -hmm. we, we see jar kombucha absolutely everywhere mm. talk us through that kind of journey of from kitchen table to to kind of where we are today man um well, brewing kombucha in small batches is very different from brewing it commercially. And we learned that the hard way. <laughs> we thought we could just scale up, you know, and um, they're, they're different, uh, different processes, I guess. Um, although we brew it in the same way that we used to brew it, uh, the SCOBY works differently in that kind of environment. So we lost loads of batches. We didn't understand um, the balance of bacteria and yeast. We didn't understand um, how to heat the room. Um, for instance, we used to heat our tanks from the bottom. Literally, we had these big tanks and we'd take a bunch of cardboard and we'd duct tape it around and we'd put a space heater underneath. But when you heat a tank from the bottom with kombucha, it stimulates yeast growth. So you get kind of weird, funky flavors. And man, we have to throw away like thousands and thousands of liters. And you were doing this in these, the, your partner's 
beer brewery, right? So we uh, the the beer brewery is next door to where we brew, but um, basically there's a huge warehouse space called Mix Garage, um, where we opened a kombucha tap room initially. That's kind of a, a side story, which is we basically we thought that everyone was going to love kombucha. We thought that everyone would know what it was. So we opened up a kombucha tap room um, and had you know our three flavors on tap. We made it into cocktails, and nobody came because nobody knew what kombucha was at the time. But we uh, slowly morphed that into kind of a, a nightclub venue. So now our kombucha brewery during the week turns into a nightclub on the weekends where you can have kombucha and you can have kombucha cocktails. And But um, but it took a long time for us to get a consistent product. It took kind of a year and a half of experimentation. Um, and we eventually brought in a microbiologist who helped us understand the process of fermentation and tweak our brewing methods to get a consistent product. Um, while still adhering to the classical kind of 10-day to two-week fermentation cycle using just those four ingredients um, that we talked about. At that point, I guess the market in, in LA was was more mature in the sense of its knowledge of kombucha than where we were in London at that time. People yeah. just didn't necessarily know about it or what it was. So I guess yeah. a lot of the early stages was trying to educate people on why they should drink this product, right? Exactly. And I think, you know, our first stockist was actually Harrods, and we were introduced wow. to their buyer through a friend of ours. Um, and he had been to L.A. and tried kombucha, and he wanted to be the first in kind of the high-end scene to introduce kombucha to people. And they obviously have a lot of customers from the States that come through Harrods. So he took a leap of faith on us, and he's like, we went in, we gave him a tasting, and within like five minutes, he's like, sweet, let's let's do it. It's mega interesting. So I guess yeah. so from that point... There wasn't any other, was there other kombucha brands operating in London in the UK at that time? Yeah, I got to give a shout out to Equinox who yeah. um, and Go Kombucha, which were the first, and Love Kombucha um, was also around at that time. So we were the fourth brand in the UK. Um, everyone was sort of doing it in a slightly different way to us. Um, we sort of wanted to not only brew kombucha that was like, that had a certain flavor profile that was a bit punchier, a bit more sour, but also we wanted to create a brand, a brand that people knew about. And for us, Creating the brand was a big part of our process, um, you know, from the design of our bottles to um, to kind of the, the graphic design of the big J on the front and then partnering up with certain stockists that we really loved, making a list of, of our top kind of 20 and then ticking those off slowly but surely. And, you know, Harrods was one, Selfridges was one, Harvey Nicks, Soho House, Whole Foods. Um, so we really like stuck to that. But um, but yeah, I had to give a shout out to those guys because they were around before us. And it's difficult, I guess, when, you, when you're into a market where you're perhaps not the first, you have to have something else to kind of shout about and be a point of difference. Mm -hmm. For you guys, I guess, at least from the outside looking in, it was about creating a slightly higher, higher end brand that mm. could go into these kind of stockists. Yeah. What were the kind of activities, I guess, that you, you, uh, that you did to be able to speak to those people in terms of, were you going out and taking samples into these places? Were you focusing on kind of pop-up events? You mentioned the tap room. Mm. In those early days when you had kind of a, a, an initial product, yeah. what were you doing to kind of get it out there? Uh, doing whatever we could to get buyer information and just like send email after email after email and send photos of our products and like find head office address and send samples. And we were relentless when it came to that. Um, but a lot of it, I think, was word of mouth. Um, I think, you know... I'd seen the way the kombucha industry was in the States, and it was very much about health. It was very kind of um, sort of had that kind of flower of lifestyle design to it, which I'm personally into. But we wanted to work in a slightly different space. We're like, why can't kombucha be enjoyed as a non-alcoholic drink? Like, why can't it be in high-end bars? Why can't it be, 
you know, in, um, in places like Harrods and Selfridges. And, it, you know, I'd seen it in the organic space in the States, but, but we really wanted to, to put it in a new space and, and get it into that premium market. So um, we had some introductions from certain people, but it was really just word of mouth. I think we made quite a bit of noise on social media. We teamed up with a PR company called Fraser Communications early on. They had some contacts, so they plugged us in some different articles and stuff like that, and it got the attention of certain buyers. And we started getting emails, and that was it was just the right time. We hit the curve kind of right at the right time, and we were making some noise. So, so some people came to us, some people we had to chase, but eventually it worked out, you know. And how important was social media for you guys at that time? Because I think timing-wise, it's when kind of Instagram really became a, a, a platform that had mass adoption. Mm everyone's on people's grandmas on facebook yeah how important was the social media play for you guys at that time i mean we didn't have many followers we still don't i think we have like twelve thousand followers um i think the thing that got people engaged was showing our personality it gave us like a space to be authentic and show a lot of the process i think that a lot of kombucha breweries were secretive about certainly in the early days when we were trying to get information on how to scale up nobody would share that information nobody would post photos of their brewery because there was a secrecy surrounding commercial kombucha production so we'd take photos of our tanks we'd show people how we bottled we'd be dancing on top of pallets we'd just do these funny videos and stuff and it i think people really identified with our personality which was you know authentic which we're still trying to do you know, our bottles look a certain way and they're super premium, but unless that's balanced with with like a human behind it, with like people that are actually, you know, leading you on a certain journey, then I don't think people identify with a brand. So we try and balance those two in social media. Particularly when you've got a product that you need to educate people on as well. For sure. You should really be leveraging those platforms as a means to show people what it's about. Yeah. You know, if you're having to tell people who are asking questions as to what it is, what does it do for me? Mm -hmm. Showing that high kind of behind the scenes nature of this is what goes on. Exactly. But equally showing you guys having fun with it, it makes yeah. it super relatable. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. So, okay, so initial stockists go in and what's the what kind of challenges did you meet in scaling up? Because you mentioned that there was, there was kind of some, some mm -hmm. difficulties that you had. For sure. What were the kind of main problems that you faced? I mean, problems we still face. Um, <laughs> we can produce a lot of liquid. Um, the issue for us is getting it into bottle um, because we do everything by hand, like still, still to this today, day. Yeah. yeah, we use uh, we use manual bottling machines that are gravity um, fillers. So basically, they just drop the liquid into the bottle. We hand cap everything. All those little labels you see on the top, we slip on by hand. And uh, up until about three months ago or four months ago, we were still using heat guns to individually shrink wrap wow. every single bottle. And now what we use, it's so ridiculous, but it sped up our process by 400%. We, we got a recycled treadmill on FreeCycle, and one of our brewers <laughs> flipped it upside down. He welded a table and turned it into a conveyor belt. And he like... He basically um, put in place these two heat guns in the perfect location, and we just send these things down the treadmill. We can turn it up faster or slower. It's amazing. And it just, shoom, shoom, shoom. there's videos of it online, and you can see it. But, I mean, it's so simple, but it was completely free. Um, and, and we're basically, everything we do, in we do in-house. We don't bring in people to design or build things for us. We have a team of people in a workshop where we do everything ourselves, um, which is which is really nice. It saves us money. Um but at the same time, we don't have like a fully automated bottling line where we can just churn out tens of thousands of bottles. We're really limited, um, which is nice because there's like a hands-on approach to everything we yeah. do. It's, it's amazing to hear that. It's an amazing story. <laughs> but equally, it shows that as an entrepreneur, you have to be able to 
leverage the limited resources you have at your disposal. And it's about being super creative at solving problems, For right? Sure. How do we bottle quicker? Yeah. I mean, flipping a treadmill is it's, <laughs> it's crazy, man. It's insane. But equally, you know, on the flip side, it also gives you such great content for, for social, be able yeah. to show that to people and yeah. engage them with that. Yeah. It's it it absolutely crazy. <laughs> it's insane. And how have you kind of seen the market, the market grow? Because I guess over the, I've noticed over the last two years, more and more kombucha brands have come to market. It's mm -hmm. become a more recognizable drink on the shelves and in mm -hmm. restaurants. How have you kind of stayed stayed relevant, stayed ahead of the pack, kept, mm. kept kind of front of mind? Well, for us, um, I think, I mean, with big brands coming in from the States, like Kavita, that's owned by PepsiCo. Yeah. I don't know if a lot of people know that. Um, brands like uh, Remedy from Australia, uh, Lobros, a lot of these guys can come in at a much lower price point. So they've launched in the likes of Tesco and Sainsbury's and stuff like that. Whereas our price point, because we hand produce everything, is still much higher than, than what they can sell it for. So... For us, something that we're good at is is we're quite kind of um, quite limber in a way. Like we can still maneuver and and do innovation quite easily. So for us, partnerships are really important. For instance, um, we've done some like one-off collaborations. We did the first kombucha on draft uh, in Whole Foods for a period of time. We launched our our raspberry on tap there, and now we have that in bottle. Um, we've partnered up with Tayer Elementary, which is uh, just one best bar in London by Time Out. It's run by this guy named Alex Cretina and his partner, Monica. And we created a hemp-based kombucha using organic hemp stocks from a collective in Oxford. So having these sort of partnerships um, allows us to maneuver like quite quickly and create like, like one-off batches and stuff like that. And we're also designing the... Um, the kombucha menu for Silo. I don't know if you've heard of that restaurant yeah, before yeah, in Brighton. Yeah. They're moving to Hackney Wick right Amazing. above Crate Brewery. They have a big non-alcohol kind of uh, menu. And so we're helping them design that fermentation side think, of things. I think it can be easy sometimes to say, well, you know, we're a smaller brand. We don't have the capacity to do what these big brands do. But mm -hmm. on the flip side, recognize what you can do. Mm -hmm. And being an independent or being a smaller business means mm -hmm. you don't have to quite jump through the same hoops and hurdles to get things done. Yeah. That's a massive uh, benefit to kind of entrepreneurs and, and mm. business people listening that if they do have a smaller brand or company, mm -hmm. see the benefits in, in the fact that you're small, that you can get things done very quickly. Mm -hmm. and if it's you and one partner or a small group, mm -hmm. you can all make an agreement mm -hmm. and go and do it. Yeah. As opposed to having to have 20 people say yes yeah. before you can act actively move. Yeah, you can actually make shit happen quite quickly. Yeah. And also, I think something that's important for smaller brands is, I mean, for us, Everything we've done has been built on relationships, like forming genuine relationships with people that we respect in the industry um, and seeing how we can work together. You know, that's been a, that's been a cornerstone of, of kind of our growth is like meeting people, connecting with them on like a deep level mm. and like making stuff happen. Yeah. You know, so so I think that's something that smaller brands have the ability to do as well. Um, you you're able to meet people you're able to connect with people that you follow on instagram or people that you know whose restaurants you love or bars you love or products you love and you can meet them you can actually do stuff you can make things happen which is really exciting it's a real good way to stretch your, your marketing budget as well especially sure. if you if you can collaborate with a partner whose ethos is aligned with your own mm -hmm. you can tap into their market they can tap into yours mm -hmm. you can share contacts you can share content it's a really kind of mm -hmm. productive way to go out and shout about something that you're doing together mm -hmm. particularly if you don't have a massive a massive budget yeah for sure where, where do you guys currently spend most of your money in terms of marketing like what's your kind of would you say is your main activity of getting the word out we just finished a um 
an eight-week sampling campaign. We got an Amazing. electric Vespa. We customized cool. it. Um, we put a little sidecar on it with a cooler box, and we did some guerrilla marketing. We just nice. went out around London. We gave out 16,000 bottles in targeted areas um, over the course of eight weeks and just got the word out there, handed out flyers, handed out discount coupons, handed out bottles, chatted to people, got feedback. I think when it comes to kombucha or any product that is a bit strange or unique or you know, just weird. People need to taste it. They need to experience it. And for us, um, our brand isn't necessarily about the health aspects of kombucha. It's more about the flavor. It's about the occasion. It's about like enjoying a beverage with friends. And so getting out there and getting it into people's hands was super important for us. So we hired an agency to help us develop that, um, hired an agency that, that basically they're called seed and they're really good at small activations, big activations. And they worked with our budget to help develop this concept and, and kind of, uh, get a team together that helped us uh, with the activation. And it was really successful. I, mean, I think it sounds incredible, but a lot of people look at those kind of gorilla old school, I guess, campaigns say, well, mm. how do you measure the ROI? I mean, how do you guys yeah. look at that and quantify how beneficial it's been? That's a difficult one to say. Um, I mean, we had kind of qualitative feedback from from the activation team while they were out. We got a lot of video content. We got um, a lot of contacts, actually sales contacts from, from different random people out in London that were managers of a place or, you know, worked at a restaurant or, and so, so we've actually got some stockists out of it. Um, at the same time, we did some kind of social media advertising and stuff like that, that would sort of, um, target those certain areas. And so, yeah, I mean, I think we're, we're yet to see exactly how that pans out, but the mere fact that we got kombucha into people's hands was what we were trying to do. Absolutely. We're trying to just make people aware of the brand, aware of what kombucha tastes like and what it is. You know? I think those kind of stunts are hugely important. I think it's about having a, a rounded 360 approach. So mm. go out and do the guerrilla marketing where perhaps the, the noise on social is, is quite um, saturated. There's, there's lots of people doing, you know, uh, lots of stuff on, on Instagram with influencers or whatever. Mm -hmm. You're going to have a really, really kind of guerrilla in-person approach yeah but equally flip that so you can populate that across your social as well yeah you kind of cover all bases and For sure. something like that like a v electric vespa yeah it's super cool yeah it's kind of timely in the sense that it's sustainable it's yeah. electric yeah electric cars yeah yeah man it's a really really <laughs> cool would you say that the sampling element and the sampling route is a good kind of stance to take as a startup brand if you're bringing a new product to market do you feel like sampling is a good way to go in terms of getting it in front of people for sure yeah especially if it's something as obscure as kombucha i I mean, you got to get, for us, we say liquid to lips, like you got to get people to taste it, to understand it, you know, and to taste it more than once to be like, you have kombucha once, you're like, what? And then you have it again and you're like, oh, damn, that's yeah. kind of interesting. So uh, if you have the ability to get a team out there, if you do it yourself, I mean, for the first like three years, I was doing more than three years, up until maybe like six months ago, I was still doing sampling at Planet Organic or Whole Foods. And I'm still doing like, uh, we were at the London Coffee Festival and I'm there four days giving samples, giving thousands of samples. And so that for me is actually one of the most energizing and enjoyable things, like interacting with people. And um, and it's not just about getting the product uh, to people for them to taste, but to interact with people and, and so they can understand who's behind the brand, what it's about, and you can actually spread your message in an authentic way. Yeah, you humanize you know? the process. So exactly. It's not just some big corporate putting, yeah. a, putting a drink in front of you. You can actually yeah. connect with the founders and why, sure. why they're doing what they're doing. Yeah. No, it's amazing, man. I love it. I mean, I mean, we have the passion fruit, the ginger, and the original. Yeah. And the ginger for me is 
banging. Thanks, man. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I absolutely love it. And I often that's one that I give to people that haven't maybe tried yeah. kombucha before. Yeah, it's definitely the, the winner. The ginger's like, oh, I get a power, powerful taste, right? Yeah. So you get that kind of mix. Mm. It's great. So you guys today, you're available in a, in a, in a bunch of sites across London and the mm. rest of the country. What's the kind yeah. of, what's the hopes and plans for the, for the future? Well, um, we we took investment actually uh, not long ago. We partnered up with a Belgian beer brewery called Duvel Mortgat, um, and they You've been practicing saying that. Yeah, Duvel. Yeah. I used to think it was Duvel, but it's actually <laughs> Duvel. Um, so I have to say no. Um, it's difficult to say. Um, they're a family-owned brewery that's been around for 150 years, um, and they own uh, several breweries throughout Europe and a couple in the states. Craft kind of um, producers. They're famous for um, uh, for their Leafman's facility, which is like a sour beer. Uh, anyways, we were looking for investment to kind of scale up last year for, for about six months. We met with dozens of people and we finally met with them and it just clicked. We just loved them as people. They had the same kind of vision for the future. So basically, they're helping us to um, expand throughout Europe. That's the next step. Um, I personally feel like um, London, uh, London's the epicenter of Europe when it comes to kombucha, but it's it's getting really saturated. Um, so I think it's important to start moving out into Europe and, and experimenting in different cities to see how it works. So with um, with an organization like them, we're able to take it further afield, tap into their distribution networks, and still focus on on creating like the highest quality product we can, which is sort of what they're all about. So. But yeah, I mean, we're still super small. Like we are, um, we produce every week. Uh, we bottle twice a week and in, in a single day in two shifts from 6.30 a.m. to 8.30 at night, we can do 7,000 bottles. Wow. And we do that twice a week. So so we're getting up to, to 14,000 bottles, all done by hand. So um, well, perception's it, reality, right? Because in yeah. my mind, when I, I see it on the shelves and in, in these in these stores and these restaurants, yeah. it looks like a huge brand, you know? Yeah. And I think to the customer, it looks like a big brand. It I almost know. suggests that you can, you can almost hack hack how big you want to appear to, to your market based on who stocks you where you are totally. and the noise that you're able to make yeah online as well absolutely man yeah and that's um it's a common misconception with our brand um that we're like this big you know like um futuristic thing but you know we're still doing everything ourselves so. you mentioned that you spent a fair amount of time looking for the right investors yeah for super sure. important mm -hmm. i can definitely relate you know spending time being patient what mm -hmm. would you say to people that are at a level where they're potentially looking at raising money for their business to scale further, how important is it to pick the right partners to go with? Oh man, it's the most important thing. Like they, for me, it comes down to gut instinct and, um, and how well you get on with people. Um, you know, for me, everything is about relationships is, is about authentic connection and communication. And with them, it felt right. It clicked immediately. They got it. They understood what we were about. We understood what they were about. And it wasn't like, you know, we met with VCs, we met with high net worths, we met with different, you know, big companies, and we met some really nice people. But um, but when we sat down in a room with these guys and we just started chatting, you know, we realized we had a lot in common. And it just, it felt more like a friendship initially. Obviously, it's a business partnership. Um, never confuse that. But at the same time, um, it just clicked. It felt right. And I think intuitively, you know, when there's people that you really yeah. connect with, but um, you got to do your research. You got to find out, you know, as much as you can about like, you know, how they do business, what they're about, what, you know, and, and, and really have open, honest discussions before involving any kind of money or transaction, you know. When you started, did you, did you have a roadmap for where you kind of wanted to get to and, and what scale you thought was possible for the business? Was there kind of like a blueprint, right? We recognize that we can get to this level, this is where we want to go. Was it more of like a, 
let's give it a go and see what happens. Like, mm, I think we had big aspirations and we still do. Um, you know, the one thing, as I mentioned earlier, that, that we listed were like the top 20 places that we wanted to get stocked. And I think we've, we've kind of signed off on like 95% of those now. So that was really exciting for us. Like we wanted to build a brand um, and make a kombucha that was sold in these places. And also, you know, from the beginning, we're like, we want to make a kombucha that we want to drink. And we couldn't find something that was strong enough. Our kombucha is a bit too sour for some people. It's a bit too punchy, but that's sort of what we're going for, hence the name jar. So for us, it was like staying true to um, the kombucha, you know, that, that we love to drink, that we want to produce, and also um, and, and working constantly working towards um, where we wanted to be, you know, and, yeah. and how we wanted to be seen by, by customers and, and respected. So Yeah, I feel there's two amazing takeaways there. The first of which is the power of setting intention and writing things out mm -hmm. and making that list and then ticking them off. Like there's real power in doing that. And mm -hmm. you can only get to where you want to go if you know where that is, right? If you've mm -hmm. made that list and for anyone starting a food or a drink business, making that list of exactly what you want to do and then being able to tick it off, super powerful. Mm. Um, uh, and equally at the same time, having that belief that you're that you're going to get there and not, dive, not diversifying on the basis of what other people want, scratching your own itch, I think it's super important. Mm. Um, I can relate with the restaurants. Like, what restaurant would I want to eat in? That's what it's going to be because that's mm. what I know and what I feel. And yeah. it's okay. Not everyone has to like it. Not everyone's yeah. going to like your product, but it's not for everyone. Yeah. And it's much easier to market to a niche of people than it is to go and market to for actually sure. everyone for sure. Totally agree with that. Yeah. That's yeah, that's always been something we've stuck to. Um, yeah, we had a lot of feedback initially that was just like, your, your kombucha is too sour. And, you know, we're always tempted to change the recipe. Um, but we've we've stuck to it, you know, and it's it's difficult at times. But eventually, I think um, you feel a lot better about what you're what you're producing or what you're doing um, when it's authentic. OK, so we, we finished each episode with a few questions. It's more of a quick fire round. But first one is, why do you get up in the morning? People to connect with people that I think uh, people are people are all we have, you know? I mean, it's the most important thing in the world to me. Um, being authentic, connecting, sharing. Um, that's what it means for me to be human. What resource has made the biggest impact on your business? Hmm. I think the fact that I started it with my best friends. So clear and honest and direct communication with everybody. Um, you know, we can be our true selves and we can give our true feedback on everything that's happening and also having like a real clear vision for for who we were and what we wanted to create, um, I think is really important. So like being really honest at the beginning with yourself and with your partners about collectively what you're trying to do and always checking in with each other um, on that. You know? Bring it back to that, making sure you're still aligned and you're on the same For thing. sure. Yeah. Definitely. What do you know now that you wish you knew when you started? What do I know now? How to brew kombucha. <laughs> when we, honestly, man, when we decided to start Jar, none of us knew how to make kombucha. We're like, I love that. We're like, I we're going to learn how to make it. I love that. And I love the fact that, I mean, when people say, oh, I can't do that. Yeah. It's like, there's so many entrepreneurs that I speak to when they've start, they've literally started their business with yeah. no idea yeah. how, to do, how to run that, how to do their yeah. business, right? Yeah. What would you say the, is the biggest challenge that you've faced so far? <sighs> the biggest challenge... I think, yeah, the, the, the scaling up aspect, um, going from being a small craft producer to, to producing on a more commercial scale now while still using um, kind of craft equipment and, and that mentality. So we're, we're at a, a, a space right now 
where um, our sales are starting to eclipse how much we can produce, which is a unique position to be in. But thankfully, with the investment from Duval, we're able to scale up. So, But we're at this space now where we're like, man, we got to take it to the next level. So that's the challenge that we're faced with right now. Like, how do we do that sustainably? Um, and how do we do that, um, you know, in a way that... Um, where we can still maintain the same level of quality. And thankfully, we, um, we've designed a specific brewing method that will allow us to, to make exactly the same kombucha using our same fermentation cycle and, and produce kind of larger quantities. So, yeah. How do you stay sane? Daily meditation. Uh, I mean, personally, it's huge for me. Um, I've been doing transcendental meditation for nine months now. Um, and it's... Yeah, man, like first thing when I wake up, I've got those 25 minutes to like just get ready for the day. Um, eating clean. I'm not personally plant-based, but I eat um, – I actually don't cook meat at home, um, which is something I never realized until right now. Um, eating clean, not drinking too much, getting enough sleep, um, maintaining and nurturing positive relationships with the people that I love. Um, you know, for me personally, spirituality is an important thing. Um it's not necessarily an aspect of our brand or anything like that, but for me, having a strong meditation practice, yoga practice, checking in with myself constantly, um, and connecting with with like-minded people is really important for me. Yeah, and uh, certainly London has forced me to deepen that practice for sure. I think coming from California, where it's sunny, you're near the sea, you're always distracted. You know, you can just do whatever. But hunkering down here in the winter, you've got to go inward to find that sense of peace. You know, and and it's been good for me. Yeah. What do you think of the different challenges living in living and working in London compared to LA? The weather, for sure. I mean, like growing up where it's like sunny all the time, and then um, the sun going down at three p.m. or the sun never necessarily coming up because the clouds are covering it. Um, it's definitely the weather has been a challenge. The the um, you know, I grew up near the ocean, so um, I miss being near the sea all the time, being away from family, stuff like that. Um, but it actually, it, I think the challenge is is better in a way. I think it, it forces you to deepen yourself in a way and also like maintain those relationships with friends and family back home, constant check-ins, like just making sure everyone's okay that, you know, that, um, yeah, London has been, initially was a challenge, but now I'm like incredibly grateful for it. And I've met some of the most incredible people I've ever met in my life in this city. Um, there's an energy here that doesn't exist anywhere else that I've been before. And people just are in this state of creation, you know, and you yeah. can just like, you can create here. And there's so many like-minded people that are doing the same thing. And it's just really exciting. Yeah. Man, it's been great chatting to you. I love the story. It's been great to hear. Thank and, you uh, for having like me. Said, we're, um, we're big, we're big supporters and big fans of the, of the booch. And if you and if people want to learn more about about Jar, kind of mm-hmm. where do they go? Uh, at Jar Kombucha on uh, Instagram or Twitter, um, jarkombucha.com. Nice. Thanks for coming, man. Appreciate Thanks for it. having me, Louis. This podcast is produced by Feevolution. It is edited by Bradley Addison Child, hosted by Louis Blake, Damian Clarkson, and Judy Nadal. To learn more, visit slash business and check us out on Instagram at plantbasedbusiness, Louis underscore Blake, and Feevolution underscore. So please share this far and wide, and we'll see you plantpreneurs next time.